welcome to the very first episode of the Autism Podcast, delivered by the London Autism Group Charity. My name is Chris Papadopoulos, and together with my fellow charity trustees, I'll be hosting and producing the show. I launched the London Autism Group Charity as a follow-on from the London Autism Group, which is a private Facebook group for anyone whose lives have been influenced by autism and happen to live in London or surrounding counties here in the UK. Um, I launched the Facebook group in 2014, uh, which was a year after my son, who was three years old at the time, um, had been diagnosed as autistic. Um, Around that time, um, I remember trying to access social media to get some support online, uh, join up and meet up with some other parents and carers and connect with them and just learn more about autism and figure out how best to support my son and my family. But when I searched around for groups, what I found was that there were a number of smallish autism groups on Facebook located across specific parts of London, as well as large national groups. Uh, and there were also some very large mixed groups not tied to any geographical location necessarily. These groups were great at what they were doing. They're still great. Uh, they're having a huge, huge impact, it would appear to me. Um, but what I wanted was a group with a more regional feel in the city that I live in, which is London. So I decided to form one myself uh, and create something London-wide, which honestly I was very surprised didn't exist. Uh, well, at least as far as I could tell. Fairly quickly, uh, after I launched it, the the number of members became quite significant quite quickly. I remember we got to about 100 very, very quickly, and that felt like quite a shock. I thought it would take a lot longer than it, what it did. Um, and at that point, I realised this is something that could really have a tremendous impact on a large group of people across a large space, but not such a large space that you lose that geographical identity. And four years later, today, the group consists of just under 1,200 members who've passed our screening stage. Our screening process is quite an important part of what makes the group tick. And we always ask people who request to join the group what their connection with autism is and if they reside in London or nearby. And we use that as a way of screening out people who are not really relevant to our group. And we get a lot of people that aren't relevant or perhaps are from just bogus accounts. That was something that really shocked me, the amount of bogus accounts, uh, the amount of fake accounts that people create just to get onto these things. I just don't understand it. None of the admin team ever did, really. Um, But we screened all of them out and we have a very active a good group, I think, which is well-liked and well-received and I think is having a positive impact. Um, one, of the, one of the things that our um, admin member and fellow trustee on the charity, James Gordon, did a couple of years ago was to create the London Autism Group Services Map, um, which is a really nice thing that our members have really benefited from, I think. Uh, not just our members, but people outside the group because it's a publicly accessible thing. The map basically does what it says on the tin. Uh, It maps out all of the autism-related organisations and services across London that we've been able to identify. It's been constantly added to by James. Today, it's been accessed over 22,000 times, which is absolutely fantastic, I think. So if you're interested in checking out that map, just Google London Autism Group Services Map. And you'll find it. And if you'd like to join the London Autism group, the Facebook group, just go to Facebook, 
and search for London Autism Group and click on request to join and one of the admin team will message you. Okay, so that context brings me nicely to the charity, which I realised I really should be creating a couple of years ago. It wasn't until December 2017 that we finally got the green light and the paperwork accepted. Here we are today in November 2018, almost a year later, at the start of our first charitable venture, the Autism Podcast, which I'm really, really excited about and I think could have a tremendous impact on the autism community and even people outside the autism community for raising understanding, raising acceptance, challenging stigma, boosting our knowledge and all that good stuff. So together with my fellow trustees, we'll be producing it. And my fellow trustees are Morgan Papadopoulos, who is my lovely, incredible, inspiring wife. Uh, James Gordon, who I mentioned before, created the, the London Autism Group Services Map. James is just somebody who I've come to know as wise, empathic and compassionate. Just very, very nice guy. There's Kieran Curry, who is another admin member of the Facebook group, who seems to be the kind of all-rounded, balanced person I, uh, uh, many of us would do well to be like. <laughs> and there's Emma Lazenby, who is, uh, again, someone full of compassion, intelligence, uh, humour, just a lovely, all-round, grounded and humble person. I'm really excited for you to get to know them a little bit more as we embark on the journey together and do these interviews and these podcasts. And in this first episode, I should say that each of us will introduce ourselves a little bit more and tell our story about how we are connected to autism and how come to be where we're at at the moment and what our hopes are for the podcast and going forwards. But first, let me just tell you a little bit more about why we're doing the podcast just in general. We just recognize that podcasts are a really powerful communication tool, which can capture really powerful stories and conversations from which we can learn and reflect upon and grow. So it's a great platform for hearing those stories and creating some impact. Part of that impact is about raising acceptance, uh, raising understanding, challenging autism stigma and negative attitudes. We'll be interviewing a wide range of people from across the autism sphere. That will include autistic people themselves, of course, um, parents and carers of autistic people, as well as other family members, campaigners, health and social care professionals, commissioners, other influencers. So a wide range of people. We want to hear those voices that haven't been heard yet. Um, Everyone has a story to tell and we want to hear it really and uh, gain something from it so we can push everything forwards in a positive direction. But first, before I jump into episode one, I just need to do a little bit of housekeeping. First, I just need to talk about language, which is uh, a very important issue for many people, I think, with good reason. Personally, I prefer identity first language. That is to say, when we refer to autistic people in our language, rather than people with autism, which is known as person-first language. I prefer identity-first language because I think it it reflects a more positive, inclusive view of autism. I think it just makes sense also. That's because I think autism is an inherent part of someone's identity, the same way ethnicity, culture and gender are, which is the reason why we say British or Jewish or Chinese or female or athletic or whatever it is. But of course, there's no one single way that people talk about autism and that people prefer uh, in terms of the language. 
And this was shown by a nice study a few years ago here in the UK by Kenny et al, who showed that different groups of people across the autism world prefer different types of language. For example, autistic adults significantly preferred identity-first terms, such as autistic and Aspie, whereas families didn't like Aspie, and professionals much preferred the term autism spectrum disorder, ASD. While terms like low-functioning, Canna's autism, classic autism, these kinds of terms were disliked across the board. So there's variation, uh, and their study showed that quite nicely. But the fact that autistic people themselves largely prefer identity-first language, I think is also a compelling reason for me for, for trying to adopt that. So I'd like to respect that. So that's my personal preference when it comes to language. But as I said, other people use different language. And If they do, I really don't think it it necessarily means that they mean any disrespect or malice or any untoward. I don't think that the use of language is really a a strong indicator of that. Um, I just wouldn't bet my mortgage on someone who uses person-first language as being someone that happens to view autistic people in a stigmatising negative way or discriminates them. It just could be that person that uses that language hasn't thought about it much before, or maybe they have and they've arrived at this at their own conclusion. So yes, language, no doubt, is an indicator of a set of beliefs that people hold, I think. There's no doubt about that. Language reflects what we believe, but I don't think it's a very reliable indicator of our set of beliefs. I think actions, behaviours, the choices people make, these are much more reliable indicators of beliefs and attitudes, I think. So given all that, going forwards, we need to give everyone the benefit of the doubt and not harshly jump to conclusions just purely based upon the language that they use. So that's my first housekeeping point. My second is to do with criticism and disagreement. I think there are things that the interviewees and the and the interviewers also are going to say that, that you're not going to like, that you may be offended by and that you might really strongly criticise or disagree with. And for me, that's completely reasonable. I think that's, you know, not something that we should deny exists. The fact that people don't agree with everything is absolutely normal. In fact, it'd be very strange, I think, if people agreed with everything all the time, it would be odd. So we welcome criticism. In fact, we don't just welcome it, we really value it. Without the ability to criticise and to express those criticisms and views on something, then our freedom of speech is impinged. And freedom of speech is one of the most important things. That shouldn't ever be impinged. We should be able to express our disagreements and our criticisms But what we don't tolerate is personal attacks, smearing, trolling and slandering. You know, it's so easy to do that under the veil of anonymity on social media these days. Given this, I'm just very cautious about it. It isn't easy for people to come on the podcast and open up and tell their stories and give their opinions and put themselves out there. It's quite a vulnerable thing to do. It's quite a brave thing to do in many respects. So please try to refrain from personal attacks and and that sort of thing, which can really only result, I think, in harm, distress and trauma, not just to the person whose attacks are centred at, but also their family and friends. And the the harm isn't just short term, it can be long term as well. So overall, what I'm saying is, it's our view that you should be able to make criticism. We value that. We welcome it. Absolutely. Absolutely. But you shouldn't need to couch that criticism within uh, personal slandering and the attacks. For us, that's just not an unreasonable request or expectation. On the issue of criticism, 
One issue that may draw that criticism are the choices that people make about disclosure and privacy. So it could be that someone comes on the show and talks about their autistic child and references his or her name. You may not like that. You may think it's unethical to discuss the child as autistic without his or her consent. What we will do is we'll highlight this issue with our guests before each interview. So we'll give them a chance to think about it, whether or not they want to disclose that kind of information, that personal information. If ultimately they choose to disclose, then, you know, whether or not we feel comfortable with that or like it or not, you know, it's something that they've chosen to do. And I think we should, again, you know, we can criticize, you can criticize, that's absolutely fine. But please do not couch that criticism in slander and smearing. We won't know perhaps the exact circumstances behind the choice to disclose. Perhaps the interviewee has already got their child's consent. Perhaps they, they feel that disclosure is an important way to break stigma. It's a difficult thing to judge. That's that's not to say don't judge, but rather to remember that you may not know the circumstances exactly. And again, please do not smear or slander with personal attacks, which we really won't tolerate. Okay, one final brief housekeeping point. Sometimes the trustees during the interviews will be expressing their personal views and opinions about things, which, as odd as it may sound to you, don't necessarily represent the charity's views in a kind of official formal sense what the charity does or doesn't advocate and what its stance is about certain things will be decided through discussion and consensus okay so with that out of the way couple last things to say first if you enjoy the podcast and you would like to support it you can do that by donating to us through facebook you can do this by going to facebook searching for the london autism group charity clicking on the blue donate button and donating whatever you want we're a small and new charity but we have big aspirations Uh, so no matter how small or large your donation is we really welcome it every penny really does genuinely count so if you are able to support us and you're happy to do that we'd really really love it if you did Um, so there's one way of searching through Facebook finding our page and hitting that blue button if you get to our Facebook page you'll also see that there's a way to set up fundraisers so for example what you might do is request that people donate to the charity in lieu of gifts for your birthday or anniversary or whatever the occasion might be that's a great way of supporting us because it helps us to raise funds of course but it also raises awareness of the charity across people's network. Another easy way is to donate via PayPal. Our PayPal email address is londonautismgroupcharity at gmail.com. That's londonautismgroupcharity at gmail.com. So you can just use your PayPal account and send over a donation that way. The one final way at the moment that you can support us is by going to smile.amazon.co.uk. That's smile.amazon.co.uk and select the London Autism Group Charity as your charity of choice. So what happens is Amazon will donate 0.5% of the net purchase price of your shopping basket to the charity, although that excludes VAT returns and shipping fees and is only upon eligible purchases. Okay, so we can head on over to the first episode. As I said before, this is about introducing the team and talking about their backgrounds and their links with autism and their hopes for the charity going forwards. The second episode is going to be released a 
about a few weeks later, we're going to try to release an episode once or twice every month. The second episode is going to be with Carrie Grant, who is an inspiring person, very well known here in the UK, is well known for her work on television, in the media, and in the music industry, but who also happens to be a tireless autism advocate, a parent of autistic children herself, and someone who's done a lot of charitable and advocacy work for autism, but also in other areas too. Our third episode is going to feature Emma Dalmain, who is a well-known autism rights campaigner here in the UK. She campaigns hard against so-called autism treatments and cures. She's also written books about life as an autistic person in today's world. She's just a fantastic, hard-working person that's made a real impact for autistic people and so we have those people lined up and we have more to come but first i present to you the podcast team and episode one we are here with the charity trustees who are morgan papadopoulos hi kieran curry <laughs> hi there emma lazenby hello and james gordon hello okay so uh so the purpose of this is just to get you to you know become a little bit familiar with us and hear a little bit about our stories and give you some context and some introductions so now over to Kieran Curry. Hi um, I'm Kieran and I have a nine-year-old autistic son who also has um, ADD and he was diagnosed when he was six years old I think Um, but we had been noticing signs um, for years. We notice things that he could do rather than what he couldn't so he was reading it too he was super curious he had a memory um like an elephant it was it was all pretty amazing but the eye contact that was the similar kind of experience the the kind of avoidance of eye contact and um and also he wouldn't answer to his name um and and yet he would remember things that were said to him later on I was um, at home with him. I decided, um, for for other reasons, we decided that um, it would be good to kind of um, spend his early years at home. So I I was a solicitor previously and I resigned. Um, But we were also, because he has a congenital heart defect, we were hypervigilant about his behaviour and his health. And so I noticed that in his speech patterns, he was very verbal, incredibly verbal. But what he was saying... And the way he was saying it just instinctively didn't feel right. And part of our struggle was trying to explain to others who just took it as a gift that he was, you know, talking about X, Y and Z. Um, but to, to kind of really explain to someone that but it doesn't feel right. It was like he was speaking English as a, um, as a second language. You know, he'd learnt it and he was using kind of stock phrases. And I think as with most parents, you the kind of the real um, tipping point is when you meet a really good professional who um, is intuitive and really takes the time um, to kind of look at your child and we had that in a in a fantastic speech therapist um, who's based in Greenwich and um, she um, said she didn't say that she thought he was autistic but she said that the way he was talking if you follow that pattern through um, a lot of um, her previous clients had then um, kind of been diagnosed as autistic later but she gave us alongside that information she gave us great intervention techniques 
um, to kind of help um, not force the eye contact, but know when to wait for it and how to adapt ourselves to how he was speaking. And, um, and so it really set him up and he's in mainstream um, he always has been and he is thriving at the moment um, but obviously it can change from year to year but uh, he has a one-to-one with him uh, unfortunately he doesn't have an EHCP yet which we are working on but um, so the one-to-one is privately funded he's in an independent school so um, that was what we had to do um, but we are at that Point where we are looking also looking at secondary schools so an EHCP suddenly becomes very urgent and the right type of school becomes very urgent um, because obviously he talking about that kind of um, the primary school bubble we um, yeah he will be out of that soon but at the moment um, he is very aware that he is autistic and embraces it and teaches a lot about life and um, and how to be better ourselves actually so we're super proud of him and yeah, so that's us. Oh, that's fantastic. Thanks, thanks very much, Kieran. That was really interesting. Uh, okay, now we'll hand you over to Emma. Hi there. Yes, I am Emma, a mum to um, a five-year-old autistic son who was diagnosed a year ago. And I have a two-year-old boy and a baby on the way, actually. He's going to come in a few weeks. Um, yes, our journey with autism really started when I was about um, 18 months where he was I'd gone back to work full-time and he was at a really amazing little short old-school short start center um, and his key worker had picked up on a few things in um, real difficult times because he's my first child I didn't really have any experience of children and I, I didn't really understand what she was saying to be honest I think there was a lot of the terminology being used was that he had an uneven profile so I think a bit like you Karen he could do think he knew his colors by I think something yeah 15 16 months and then came the shapes which I didn't I'd gone back to work full-time so all my NCT friends with kids the same age my kind of basis I, I, I wasn't hanging out with other mums of um, kids the same age to compare, so I didn't really think anything of it, as I didn't with anything else. I mean, he's always been quite a sensitive kid, but they were having difficulties with his emotions and, yeah, things that seemed to me just quite normal for an 18-month-old. So I think going through that whole process of like, oh, he's just a baby, Let, let's not do this, I don't really understand, to then, you know, maybe six months later having a complete turnaround and thinking gosh, I'm just so grateful that you've spotted something. And um, I just had amazing support. This was when we were living in the Camden Borough of London, actually, where there was access to wonderful support. So then they were just waiting for me, basically, to give them the go-ahead for a diagnosis, which we then got. As I say, this was last, just before we turned four last year, which, um, yeah, was a day I still remember very very clearly um going in there with my husband just just thinking but gosh he just he can't be autistic because he he does all these other things and but thinking then what, what if he's not autistic like who's going to help us where where do we go and um starting to actually maybe want a label for it whatever it was and um yeah it, it's the best path with gone down because I then deferred his um, start at school because he was a late August baby he's just started um, we're in week five I think at mainstream school and he's just doing brilliantly I just couldn't be 
prouder of him, but I think a lot of that is to do with he's in a wonderfully inclusive school. Um, I've managed to put up a really strong fight to get his EHCP in place. Just It just came for a few weeks before we started. But um, I think also I've, I've had the benefit of I reluctantly um, stopped working in a career that I absolutely adored. Um, but it, it just wasn't practical for me and my family to carry on working at the time. Just so many assessments. And so I've been at home ever since, really. So it's been two and a half years not working. But um, which is which brought me into the London Autism Group, actually. I think um, getting talking to Morgan one day at a baby group and um, cause suddenly not working when you've worked all your life and you love what you do and then your whole life becomes autism. It, it really can take its toll and you have some very dark days. Well, I certainly did. But um, yeah, finding people to talk to about it has just been a wonderful, wonderful thing. And this whole year has been such... Sounds cheesy, but such a journey. But just the ability to be more positive about everything now and being honest with people, it, it, it's just been brilliant. So this is why I'm here, really, to just help as many people as possible um, to learn from anyone else who can give any um, advice because I'm very open about not really knowing what I'm doing and I'm still very much learning about my son and autism every day is completely different so um, yeah I think we've got a lot of things we can all thrash out together and yes really looking forward to it. Great thank you and now uh, I'll hand you over to James Gordon. Hi there. I'm a single parent carer, uh, full-time, to my son, uh, Daryl. He's 10 years old. um, And it was obvious, really, from pretty early on, from about six months, actually, that uh, there were a lot of things not right with his development. So um, he missed every milestone. He wasn't seeing up on time. Then went into not crawling and not walking, um, certainly not not anywhere near talking, um, and and also not much eye contact. So um, he needed to be completely dependent on me. I gave him a lot of a lot of help, a lot of one to one help. Had to manage um, getting in touch with health professionals, you know, appointments, taking him to appointments for assessments very young age um he got his assessment he got one assessment for global developmental delay at two years old and then at two and a half he got an assessment for autism and he got uh, the diagnosis then i focused on what he could do as opposed to what he couldn't do because he was making where he was making progress when i helped him along he came along leaps and bounds um, physically, so once I got him walking and then teaching him things like how to play on the playground toys and things like that, he, he's totally obsessed with outside play now. And, and next year he'll be going to um, secondary school, special school. Um, and I'm putting down for one of his life goals that um, he should have sports and um, physical activities, you know, as. as a major interest he doesn't speak but he does communicate so he'll use um the picture exchange system and uh, where he'll give me a a picture of what he wants to request it um or 
He's also learned to communicate just by taking my hand, pulling me up from the chair and um, taking me to what he wants. For instance, if he wants a toilet, he hasn't got time to go and get a picture. It's more urgent than that. So he'll pull me to what, you know, to where he wants to go uh, so I can give him the help that he needs. Uh, and uh, when he got his diagnosis, I didn't know where to turn. So I sort of looked on social media and uh, there were sort of the seeds of um, parents getting together on there and um, making Facebook groups and things like that. There wasn't uh, anywhere near as much as there is now. But um, I've been on on Facebook for many years now, for eight years, interacting with other parents. Um, I've learned a lot about problems and I've, I enjoy passing on my knowledge to help other parents in turn. Um, I came across Chris's group, the London Autism Group, um, just after it had formed. I went on there and uh, started to help help out people, give them information. And he asked me to help admin the group. Um, and I've been there ever since, really. It's a wonderful feeling to be in the same boat with um, a group of people uh, who understand your problems and where you're coming from and who can support you as you support them. The thing that kept coming up was people would say there's no activities in their area or there's no support in their area or even go to say, as far as to say, in the whole of London. Uh, So I'd always be able to look on Google or the internet and find something for them and pass it on and signpost them. But um, now I've had the idea of putting it into... You can make um, a map of it on Google and you can put these organisations on there. Uh, And we've done that for the group. So we've got our own map. We can just refer people to find help in their area and get the support they need. The next step we're hoping to do with the London Autism Group charity, which I'm a trustee of, is to bring more of that support to families and autistic people, children and adults. And I'm very excited for the impact we're going to have um, on society as a whole um, and for the future. Okay, thanks very much for that, James. Now I will hand over to my wife, Morgan Papadopoulos. Thank you. I am very happy to be here as part of the podcast and really just part of um, this London Autism Group charity as a trustee. It's something that Chris formed, like he said, I think earlier in his introduction. And I'm just really extremely proud of him and I'm very humbled to be part of this podcast that we're producing and creating. Um, I, I guess I, I, pay, I paid her to say. That. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, you do. No, um, we have three boys: um, an eight-year-old, a six-year-old, and a two-year-old. Um, and our firstborn, who is eight now, but when he was two, we had some concerns uh, about his talking and his kind of like lack of social um, communication and awareness and. Um, yeah, and we went through the whole uh, diagnostic process, and it was when he was almost three and a half where he was diagnosed with autism. But I think that year up until then, he got a lot of different support through, um, you know, at nursery and just through a lot of like speech therapy and different professionals that were involved. So it was, you know, it's... when did we when did we first 
realise that maybe some you know maybe he might be autistic. Well, I I think it was that too that he wasn't talking, and we thought, oh, that's some, something's not quite right mm. here. But I think it took mm. us a while before like mm. autism became part of like the framework. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I think we did. I think one of the professionals, right? Who yeah. came to visit us mentioned. Yeah, yeah, it, that and that was be... really the first that was, time. That was, yeah, I, think I think we think, were in a bit yeah. of denial, maybe like like legitimately right. were like not. Right. trying to think about it and it was really hard that first year because I remember her actually saying that there was there was a there was a sort of little test that you could do I to... think I think she pointed out the fact that he wasn't giving eye contact right so he so what realized. she did was she showed him some object I think it was a toy some sort of toy mm-hmm. and then when he began to play with it she tried to talk to him mm-hmm. and see where his eye contact yes. would go yeah and when it didn't go to her and yeah. stayed on the toy she she thought she yeah. for whatever reason thought yeah, okay yeah. that is and I just felt very defensive about it oh it could it could be that you know it's, yeah. it's just a good toy <laughs> you know I was looking at the toy <laughs> well <laughs> to be fair I think in in that sort of initial period of time where we sort of began to think about autism as being a reality and pre and post diagnosis that kind of period I think. You and I definitely dealt with it in different ways and had like a different kind of progression like through our like processing of it. Um, and I think that you were maybe six months behind me. We used to say that like, oh, I kind of was yeah. thinking about it yeah. and um, kind yeah. of coming to terms with it in different ways. And mm. I think you were still questioning for mm. a while, which I think is your nature. Um, and I think once you um, once you kind of um, took it on board and and. Like the reality of it, I think then, like the way in which you process it is that you like brought it into your work life in a way, and that you decided that well, actually, I'm going to research autism. I'm going to make autism, mm. yeah, part know. of my agenda. Sort yes, of, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and I think that's been yeah. really a positive, mm-hmm. a positive mm. thing for you to be doing. Um, uh, maybe, yes. maybe we should mention then that that's what my day job is, which is a lecturer at university, and part of that is doing. Uh, academic research and when when I did realize that it's likely to be be the case that my son was autistic and you know it, it begin you begin to live that life don't you that's all you absorbs yeah. most of your thoughts oh, and you all become of them, right, sometimes yeah, yeah. it's hard to think yeah. about anything in else all, you just see it everywhere and then um, yeah. think about it all the time yeah in all contexts and all interactions at all times of the day you know it absorbs your life and uh I just wanted to channel it in a positive way, and you know when you when something absorbs you like that, you become very passionate about it. So, I decided to 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 try and center some of my research activity on autism because, the, for me, the best research is something that is almost personal to you because you become very passionate about something. When you're passionate about your research, you really throw yourself into it, and I just thought that would be a good way of me making a a difference. I wanted to. I wanted to do something for my son, for for autistic, for the autistic community, and maybe also myself as part of my own mental health. Yeah. Um. So, but but I think actually, like for for you, Chris, it's very like. I feel like there's two sort of different categories of the way in which you've kind of thrown yourself into like the autism world and research. So there's obviously the research that you do with your job as a like as an academic. Uh, but then also in your personal time, you know, that you started this whole Facebook group um, and then subsequent charity. 
Um, and I think like that is something that I actually I think in some ways that you're even more passionate about because it's something that you have created from the ground up. Um, and I think it's something that, you know, you, that you can be immensely proud of and that it's actually at the moment currently providing a lot of support to people, you know, in, in real terms. Whereas I think research, it takes a long time before like, um, the things that you've researched get disseminated and, and that they start helping people. You know, I wanted to branch out and do do some more kind of on-the-ground community work. All the while being father to three young boys. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. really, really busy. Yeah, but um, obviously I, can't, I couldn't have done anything without you. Uh, <laughs> I should say that for the record. Yeah, no, we're, I'm sure, uh, we are a team, aren't yeah, we? Yeah, of course, yeah. So, um yeah, yeah so that's, that's, a bit about, that's a little bit about about us, isn't about it? About us, yeah. yeah. Should we say a little bit more about our eight-year-old and where he's at now? Um, sure. Um, he goes to a mainstream school and he has um, what's called an EHCP. EHCP, and <laughs> what used to be called a statement. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. that's that's what it's called in the UK anyway, at least the the, the formal state-provided support for your child's uh, education and health. Yeah. And, and a care plan, essentially. Yes, so he goes to mainstream school um, with this sort of care plan provided by the local council. Which isn't um, easy to get, by the way. No, oh, we, 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 we need to highlight that. Yeah. 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 I've, I've yeah. just not, got mine. Yeah, 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 yeah. This is a do... whole podcast episode, yeah. 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 maybe <laughs> multiple episodes. Yeah. We need to do that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so he gives um, a one-to-one TA for um, you know five out of six hours of his day. Um, and he's been managing that really well. I keep saying that he's in sort of this primary school bubble. So he has the same classmates he's had all throughout school and he's in year four now and he's, you know, had some really great TAs. He's got a, a good supportive Senko, um, you know, and his classmates know him well and he is well liked and supported. And so I just think he's in this really nice primary school bubble. Um, yeah. And another thing next year, we have to start looking at secondary schools. So that will be no. hard and interesting <laughs> and challenging. Um, but at the moment he's, he's doing well. It's all very stable. Um, and our, our, we have a six year old and he's doing great. He's, uh, amazing um, support as well to our older one. He's very compassionate. Because he's our middle one, he definitely is the glue between the older one and the younger one. And I think like he is just kind of like, I think, the backbone between the three of them. He does really, really well. Um, and then we have our two-year-old who started nursery about a month ago, uh, or preschool. And um, I think we see some similarities um, in the experience we have with him to what we had with our, our oldest um so and of course is that two two and a half is really the the same kind of time frame of you know when you start going through the process of is he or isn't he and getting some professional support and guidance and assessing and so we're really just starting that journey again really so um so yeah so that's us sort of our sort of home life and personal situation um and i just wanted to say a little bit about involvement in the charity and how the charity has come come about and obviously um we spoke a bit about chris making the charity a reality which has been you know a goal of yours for quite some time once the facebook group i think kind of took off and then like you said you could see the sort of value of creating a charity um but obviously it's, it's not easily done but obviously in creating a charity you also need funds um so that the charity has money which to help make an impact um uh, and so basically what i just wanted to say is that um 
My mom uh, was very supportive of Chris. Obviously, like she loved you very, very much and was very proud of the work that you were doing for autism. Um, she also had a very, very close bond. She had this really like endless, unconditional like love and acceptance for him, and um, and and I think they just both really shared a bond together. Um, I think part of it is that my mom um, had MS for a very, very long time, uh, oh. multiple multiple sclerosis, uh, and she and she was permanently in a wheelchair. Um, I don't know. I must have been about. 10 or 11 at the time um, when she sort of had her last attack that she never sort of walked again after that not her last ever attack but the last sort of significant one so about how many years Um, so she must have been in a wheelchair from for about 30 years I'd say Mm. Um, anyway so a couple years I think it was May 2017 um, just her general health and well-being had had deteriorated um, quite a lot, and she, and we knew that she was not going to be around for much longer. And she, before she passed away, she made it very explicitly clear to all of us that in lieu of any kind of flowers or, you know, any other kind of gifts or donations that one might make, um, you know, after someone's passed away, she did ask for everyone to uh, contribute to a GoFundMe campaign to really help launch... Uh, the London Autism Group Charity. Um, so that would give sort of the charity that Chris created a big boost um, to help its existence. Um, and yeah, that's what she did. And so I think after she passed away, we made a GoFundMe. Was it GoFundMe campaign? Uh, what was it? Just Giving. Just Giving, mm-hmm. sorry. That has like been instrumental in creating in creating this charity and now like a year and a bit later we are making our first our first podcast and I think she'd be very proud of that yeah I, I mean I, I'm glad you said that because that's absolutely true and it it wasn't just the fundraising it was the fact that she was so supportive of our son and and us and you know the whole autism thing you know she she was she was also she was always you know saying the right things yeah. doing the right things and she also for the record pushed me along the line in terms of uh, getting the application for the charity completed and you know I definitely give credit to her for helping mm-hmm. the charity kick off let alone the fundraising and yeah. in honour of her and her memory which is just unbelievable yeah yeah what's so, her name? Randy Randy? <laughs> Randy? <laughs> I know awesome uh, yeah in, um, so I was always quite was amused it, really. in the UK it's it's yeah. You know, let's not forget our international audience. <laughs> but in the UK, it's it's not a typical name that we would give. It's, Randy essentially means something very different. <laughs> in the US, it, it is a well, yeah, it is a common normal name. Re, yeah, perfectly normal <laughs> name. Uh, great name. <laughs> it's a great name. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think because she was in a wheelchair, she did spend a lot of time in bed. Um, and they would just cuddle up in bed together and she would sing him a song and like you know this one like very like just like specific lullaby and he just knows every word still Um, yeah still now he could sing it for you and um they just spent hours and hours like that or like playing on the ipad and and of course she just loved it having him there with her and he loved all the like endless like cuddles because he's very like tactile like that they have that yeah. enviable patience as well that I must admit I don't always no, have really it's, yeah there's no bounds yeah. we, we were very lucky with, with her and with family generally yeah. we've been very lucky it isn't always the case obviously you know 
unfortunately, much stigma comes within the family. Yeah. And that's particularly hurtful because that's, you know, where you'd hope for support and um, understanding. So, you know, in our case, we got that and we were very lucky and very fortunate. And so I think I'd like consciously remind myself of that, that it isn't always the case that family can be so so supportive and we're, we're fortunate in that respect. I think even when it's not their fault, we're just generational differences and... No, I mean, it, it seems like a silly thing to say, but it's almost, it's, it's, it's a good time to be autistic, where society's becoming more inclusive. I would have been terrified if diagnosis had it been, I don't know, 10 years sooner or something. Mm. So, so we're, we're ahead of the older generation in some of our families and their attitudes of just, yeah, I think yeah they can't help the U- it. The UK it's, particularly, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. I think the UK are doing, uh, we're, we're doing quite well with, challenging attitudes and understanding. I think we've made a lot of progress. Definitely, a long way to go, but it it just feels more positive at the moment. Yeah, but I think in other cultures and communities around the world, they are way, way behind. absolutely. Attitudes, Mm. yeah. So hopefully we can help through this podcast, potentially improve improve attitudes. But you're right, Emma, I totally agree. Particularly in the UK, it's it's not the worst time, you know, in terms of the support and understanding to be autistic, right? Yeah, yeah. and to be different. Yeah. And differences, yeah. you know, it, it's yeah. just become this, this good word. Yeah. And I think it's... social media as well, you know, for all its ills, you can connect with people so much more easily, easier than you, you could before um, globally. So that it's easier to, you know, to use the phrase, find your tribe. Um, mm. as soon as you have access to the internet um, yeah. it doesn't matter how different you feel to the people in your immediate kind of surroundings and circle um, you can find somebody out there who you kind of connect with and if they can do that safely then that's great it gives you a sense of not feeling so different but being part of a diversity mm, which is celebrated you know yeah exactly. absolutely yeah yeah part of a a global community, right? Yeah, exactly. Makes you feel less Absolutely. alone and more supportive. Well, I think certainly that's Everything. how the Facebook group mm. kind of, uh, you know, yeah. has made me feel. I mean, we're, we're kind of London-centric um, at the moment, but but certainly the wider communities on Facebook as well, you're, you're having the same experience as someone on the other side of the planet. Um, and regardless of your kind of, um, you know, your economic... Uh, status <laughs> sorry I don't know why I use that phrase. um you you're sharing an experience um that is very personal and um, very profound and I think that to have a connection with someone like that is is oh. fantastic as parents mm. it, oh, yeah. it's everything now I, I don't know what parents used to do autism parents actually they must have felt very isolated and it, it, it would have been a real real struggle I mean obviously still got a way to go but that there's definitely ways to reach out to people and, and you certainly yeah. don't feel alone and it's I don't which I'm really mm. grateful of mm. but um, yeah, hopefully we can just make that even more so for those listeners that are feeling isolated then and feeling alone what, what would you recommend? connect I think um, connect and be honest and open because when you are honest and open you allow others to be um, in turn and then I think that's really powerful. I mean, we found it um, just in terms of a personal story with our nine-year-old son. Um, he was born with a congenital heart defect, which we knew about when I was pregnant. Um, but we were encouraged by the hospital uh, that we were attending to connect with other parents who were going through similar experiences. So we had a very atypical beginning to our kind of 
pregnancy you know the normal nct classes just weren't really cutting it um and so we were encouraged to connect with the parents who were at similar stages of pregnancy be having the babies at the same hospital and it was amazing you just within one day of having kind of a group meeting and then connecting on facebook afterwards you just did not feel alone anymore and you didn't feel so atypical um you felt very typical for the group of parents who you were who you were with and that stayed with us and it's been a great source of support so when we realized that that our son was autistic and we had an official diagnosis it just seemed natural then to connect with parents who were having that experience too and we haven't really looked back and I hope that in the future our son will use the same you know will use connection as a as a real emotional resource for for himself um again not to feel so alone Mm. yeah there's something about, I mean, I think it's in our human DNA, isn't it, to, to, to need to feel connected and that thirst for social interaction, social communication. You know, nobody wants to feel lonely, right? Oh, no one wants to feel lonely. And nobody should feel lonely, yeah. you know, in this right. day and age. Nobody right. should feel lonely. No one should feel lonely. But unfortunately, loneliness is a, a, a epidemic levels at the moment in the UK, and you, at least I'm sure, I know in the UK it is. And I'm sure in other places also. Um, so we've got a long way to go. And I think Kieran's advice about perhaps using or harnessing the power of social media to connect with other people. And mm. as hard as that can be, trying to be brave, as brave as you can about it and open up can bring some seriously fantastic rewards, leap. right? Yeah, yeah, it is a big leap. I mean, you know, we were used to it because we had to do it very early on. Um, so it seemed pretty natural. But it, you know, I do appreciate that it is a big leap. And also, you're going through so many emotions when you are when you have suspicions that there's an autism diagnosis coming your way or when you are diagnosed. But, um, but just try and be brave because it, it really can reap such rewards. Um, there are people waiting to yeah. just share with you and, and, and be there for you and support you um, in a way that perhaps you're not getting from the professionals around you, but from a very personal, kind of heartfelt place. Um, I think it's the honesty that you mentioned as well. So not just on social media, but just um, because we're only a year into kind of the post-diagnosis period, so I'm still kind of finding my way. And my son's just started school, and I really am... I didn't know whether to um, kind of introduce, you know, our pre-school like school start playgroups as being autistic or just to, I was worried I didn't want anyone to just look at him through autism eyes because he's, well, to see him for being like his wonderful little self mm-hmm. and not just an autistic kid. And I really battled with myself, but then in the end, it, I met such lovely parents that it just came out naturally. And the response has been so amazing. I, I mean, probably better than if I was in their position and didn't know much about autism, just this seamless response, not awkward, just that, oh, okay, in what way? And, and how did you know? And how do you cope? You know, I, I, I'm quite social, but I think even in that situation, I don't know how, how I would respond, whether to think, oh, well, you know, I'm sorry, or but I haven't had any of that. And um, it's just made the whole school start absolutely just so enjoyable, actually, because people are wanting to ask me about autism, so I just feel like I'm in this lovely position to say, yeah, I mean, look how amazing my son is, but that autism is, it can be this brilliant thing and all these things people don't know about it, but that has come from just having, you know, that, that honesty because, mm. yeah, 
again going back to kind of the generational differences I think and, and, and stigma which you're so amazing at kind of campaigning for destigmatization which I'm massively passionate about too because once 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 that goes if people can open their minds up to mm. you know how wonderful it can all be because my family have, have taken a bit of a while to get there but um because mm. autism just was a bit of a frightening word I suppose mm. yeah um, um, I mean so sometimes it isn't the case that you f you actually experience stigma you know but sometimes you expect it and that expectation that worry that you might you might find it or it might come to you is as powerful or or, or can be oh, da as damaging as the experience of <laughs> stigma in itself and it's interesting because i think what you said kind of reflects that you know you were a little bit worried you were saying you were worried perhaps about opening up and how to communicate that your son was autistic and whether to say it or not. And I think that most people, I mean, many other parents and autistic people themselves, they want to communicate it, but they feel uneasy about doing it. I think mean, that's, that's the thing, isn't it? And that uneasiness is, is um, it shouldn't exist. You know, I mean, it's reasonable that it does, but it exists because we're worried about the, the negative reaction and the stigma and the... And, and the rest of it, whether or not it's there or not, we're worried about it. And we shouldn't need to be in the same way we aren't when we talk about us being an introvert or an extrovert or whatever it is our identity is about. Nobody's going to hold back from saying, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm British. You know, nobody, you know, there's no fear about saying that. And I just think we need to get to a place when there's no fear about saying, oh, I'm autistic. You know, whether, if it is the case you want to talk about it, I mean, that's that's your choice but it's, it's it's so devastating if you want to talk about it and you want to be honest and open about it but you're you're holding back because you're, you're worried about the negative reaction that's that sort of um, you know that's what I'm talking about in terms of but then I suppose we don't move forward stigma. do we this is the thing yeah. if, if we're not honest about it I mean you I'm not saying anyone should feel forced it's it's a completely you're more, I think, I think though that you're more likely to be open about it if society if you if you just feel that society around you is is positive about it do you know what I mean and at the moment there is, we haven't got that have we we haven't got that that it's not normalised enough to the point where we feel open just to sort of talk about it as if it's you know anything else and I think yeah, that's the power that parents have you know in a, at a time when you might feel very powerless and there is an aspect to your personal life that's out of your control and your child's experience that's out of your control the power you have is how to sh shine the light forward for your child um, because how you think about autism and neurodiversity is going to be rooted in the people that experience you and your relationship with your child. So if for you, you embrace it, um, you accept the challenges, you deal yeah. with the challenges, but you accept it as part of your child's identity right. and you... Uh, show that acceptance to others and you know uh, to the people who your child's in communication with your child will see it they will see it and i'm pretty certain it will change how they perceive your child right. and how right. your it's child cycle, perceives others yeah. you know right. um, everything is linked You're absolutely everything's right. linked and you know um we i think we had this question on um on the facebook group at one point you know how to deal if someone is staring at your child um on the tube and um and i think that in those situations i think i'd read somewhere or somebody had said that 
just be as kind and as uh, positive with your child as possible because then that kindness and positivity not to sound trite but will spread out and it also shows that that is the acceptable way that should be the way that you deal with a child having a meltdown on the tube not being judgmental and starey you know as uncomfortable as it might be for you it will be a model for others um, to behave similarly in those situations or towards your child and I think your child will be observing this all the time I mean it all sounds easier to say when, <laughs> when you're not in the moment I do completely appreciate that I think that's the We've message we're trying to put yeah. the message out there aren't we that's that's what we hope for parents and yeah. carers yeah. And, uh, to do is to is to fight back that stigma just love your child yeah love you know love yeah. your child or love your family member or whoever it is or love yourself as well mm. you know regardless of the of the stigma that you feel or experience you know and that that will pay dividends but unfortunately it is easier said than done yeah, isn't totally. it totally <laughs> I mean, when you when you are feeling so low and down and alone uh, and and you you know you might be experiencing anxiety all of that really compounds one's ability to think healthily and treat yourself kindly with compassion you know that's what we're talking about here isn't it be be self-compassionate but when your when your mental health is 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 mm. poor then that undermines our ability to do that and as you said to your point Kieran everything is linked you know if if society's attitudes were you know, were positive about autism, you know, and there was no issue and, and, and there was no expectation of stigma, then I think, you know, that would trick, there would be a sort of trickle-down effect, wouldn't it, where, where you're less likely to have poor mental health and then you're more likely to, to think healthily and, and, and do, do the, the sorts of things you're calling out mm-hmm. for. So it's, it goes both ways, doesn't it? I mean, if, if, you're, if you're doing the right things, then you're going to do your bit for pushing back on stigma, you know, public stigma. But then if the public isn't stigmatising, then you're, there's no need for you to push back. You know, you're, you, you wouldn't have that challenge. We're doing OK. In the, I mean, in terms of the UK, we've made progress. But in other parts of the world, particularly, this is really serious stuff. Uh, and the, the more normalised, accepting everybody is, of just the fact that it's a difference and a, and a matter of diversity. It's neurodiversity, isn't it? Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. Yeah. What, what do you what do you think, James? Do you, do yeah. you agree? <laughs> I was thinking about the um, uh, the kind of evolution of autistic people now, um, and the way they they've started on social media um, to produce role models, um, and they're what it feels like to be autistic, what's acceptable and what isn't, um, what kind of uh, views they want to portray, you know, about being autistic. Um, Those campaigners are amazing, aren't they? Yeah. I mean, the, 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 we should definitely credit their impact, right, their positive impact, which I'm glad you're doing. So that's, that's linked you know, as well. Yeah. So, in a way, that's going to feed back into the public perceptions. Yeah. Um, and that's another in thing. A positive that, way, isn't it? Yeah, and that's another thing that parents can do, right? If they're feeling down and lonely about things, you know, and they're not sure how to turn, they're, they're too fearful, perhaps, to access social media to communicate and contact, which we would love for them to do. If they're not quite there yet, something they can do is go on so on um, YouTube, for example, and listen to these these champions of the autistic life 
and and listen to to their to, to who who they are and what they're saying and that that will give you a lot of hope and inspiration and that that can help as well yeah um i remember when uh my son was diagnosed eight years ago now uh you know things hadn't come along like they have so um there was only one real personality temple grounding and that was it um but now there's a whole a, a completely new um, group of people come along um, so it's not just one person anymore um, and there's a much more uh, breadth of um, views and um, things to things to take example from mm. you know about neurodiversity and it's really developing now mm. and I think it's a fantastic thing for parents to um it's a fantastic resource for parents. Um, it was only through kind of the Facebook group that I became aware of these YouTube channels and these personalities and the blogs and the vlogs. Mm. And it just opened a whole new world to me. I think um, you can sometimes get, um, you can create a bubble around yourself and your experience and you can forget that your child's going to grow up and become an autistic young adult and an adult. and they'll need their own role models and there's just a wealth of them out there now and um, they're very challenging about how you, your kind of um, kind of preconceived notions of, of autism, as kind of well-meaning as they can be, they play a great role in, in challenging those notions and showing you what the reality of being an autistic adult can be like if you embrace your identity. Um, and yeah, I mean, I'm so grateful that they exist for, for myself and hopefully for my son when, once he starts to gain more access to them. Mm. You were saying earlier to me that your son really enjoys watching these videos, right? And gets oh yeah, he loves yeah, it, yeah. 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 Um, so, I mean, obviously I vet them because he's not at the age where he can have unfettered access, but um, there have been some great people who I found through um, kind of the London Autism Group and... Um, and then from them I found kind of other links to others and um, he loves them because he just instantly there's a recognition there that there is someone who's going through something it's not a neurotypical adult or parent who's talking to me about my experience there's somebody else who has gone through similar challenges to you and also might you know might have more severe challenges than you or might have um, might find certain other things easier but yeah, I, I can see the instant recognition um, and and the excitement. I mean, as soon as he watched one, he said he wanted to do a vlog. Yeah. <laughs> to be fair, it was going to just be about Star Wars. But the fact that there was a motivate, it was a motivating thing. It was hopeful. It was positive. It was forward thinking. Um, and, and to James' point, it's like a role model, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, so just, you know, going back to your earlier question, what can you do? Um, once you've got to a point where you can think more widely about the autistic world, please do kind of open yourself up to to these vlogs, etc., um, and then see what your child can make use of. You know, at the stage they're at, because um, they're they're honestly fantastic. Mm. We'll have to get some of them on on the podcast. Yeah, right? definitely. Yeah. I'm intrigued because this is a bit kind of pre. Uh, Liam's only just turned five, so our main outlet is Pablo on CBBS. Oh, which of course, yes, yeah. Has really has definitely helped him. It is the most beautiful, beautiful little CBBS show. Which yeah, Pablo's autistic. Yeah. All the characters are voiced by autistic children, mm. and they each have their own traits. Oh. And 
you know, just little things like that have mm. definitely helped. Just watching him watch it. But no, I, I'm quite excited when you know when he gets older. Just having you know, these yeah. YouTubers and these you know these cool young adults that he can take comfort in as well is is definitely reassuring because mm. the futures can be frightening, can't it? Sometimes I think mm. every day is different when you're an autism parent. Sometimes you're super excited about the future and what they can achieve and these wonderful things, and then. Other days the fear kicks in and you're just absolutely... I think they represent the growing representation of autism, autistic people on uh, on the media, on social media, on YouTube and also on television and various channels like, you know, children's channels or whatever it is. Mm. That's, I think that's a good sign, isn't it? Doesn't that reflect, I think, the, 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 the change, as you were saying earlier, Emma, about... You know, it's, it's, it's a relatively good time in terms of autism attitudes and where we're at in the UK, at least. I mean, you, it you, does. We, didn't, we didn't have this kind of representation, you know, 20, 30 Not years ago, did we? I mean, My mum thinks it's amazing. I yeah. mean, you're still going to have your bad days as a parent mm. where you do, you know, you're going to come up against, you know, the stigma mm. and you're going to yeah. have your occasional heartbreaking day, but, but the bigger picture. But the thing is, um, as good as the representation is, and, and, and you know, I think of it as a sort of symbol as movement in the positive direction in terms of attitudes, um, as good as it is, it, it also carries some danger as well, just in terms of uh, perpetuating stereotypes and accidentally increasing stigma. They've got to be, these people have got a lot of power in, in a way because they are the ones sending messages to our society to a lot of people about what autism is you know so they they need to be very very careful about sending you know the sort of the the i'm not sure what the right messages are but certainly not not the the kinds of messages that will add to stereotypes and and uh we saw that with with of course with rain man with the movie rain man right mm, I what mean, to answer for yeah i mean <laughs> yeah. The damn it, that, that, that's what i'm i'm cautious yeah. about you know that that the media can play such a powerful role, right, in, in the way that we understand something, the language that we use, and, you know, they are the conveyors of, of sort of social life, aren't they? They tell us what about our culture, and I, I love that they're doing it, but I, I just a call for them to be as, as sort of careful as possible and thinking about the importance of not reinforcing stereotypes. Would, would you agree? Yeah, they should come and talk to us about it. They should come <laughs> Everybody's autism is completely different, so they need to show that a lot more than they're doing. Um, because somebody watching it who who doesn't know about autism is just going to think, right, well, I know about autism now, but they only know about the one person they're watching um, and somebody else who's autistic could be experience it completely differently um, so they probably should have something at the beginning of a program that mm. you know yeah. tells people that one of my favourite sayings is you know if you've met an autistic person one autistic person then you've met one autistic person that is it do you know what I mean yep, you know, that, exactly. that sort of reinforces the, the, what you're saying right the, the idea that there is no one autistic person that is the same as any other one autistic person everyone's different uh, another so. one is uh, another stereotype is the Big Bang Theory. Of course, yeah. yeah. So, are we talking about Sheldon? Yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, my son falls yeah. foul sometimes of that. Like, he's very bright and um, highly verbal, and uh, and so 
if you would follow the kind of I mean they've never said Sheldon is autistic but if you mm. follow that kind of stereotype through you'd think but he can go and become this super brain you know professor um, but actually they don't um, you know they, they don't look at the difficulties at all exactly yeah. um, they don't look at this child who can you know who's interested in nuclear fission but actually just can't pick up a knife and fork properly mm. or really struggles to remember how to put clothes on in the morning you know so it's um his day and is completely diverse in terms of what his brain has to go through but it's a difficult task i think that's i think you can't have tokenism i'm from an asian background and you don't have a typically asian person you shouldn't have a token asian on your program and you can't have a token autistic person on your program because there's no such thing um but so don't task yourself with representing a whole community um with one person but just represent diversity um within your the narrative that you're showing um, so that's why it's good for maybe groups of parents like us being together talking about our very different autistic children and our personal experiences because just having that wider representation and having the platform of the, the London Awesome Group Facebook page, I mean, that, that's just a huge representation itself of just how diverse autism is. But I, I think that's a good point because although I've experienced some kind of negative um, attitudes with autism, I, I think it, you do have the opposite as well when people say well how wonderful is he a genius and he's going to do all these amazing things he's going to be like a physician or but but and, and then that, that, that clouds the that he's susceptible to anxiety and that he just finds life a little bit more difficult so it's yeah it, it's a difficult balance isn't it you want to celebrate what they're, they're capable of and want everyone else to so you need everyone to know what the autistic brain is capable of but also just the difficulties are very very real so you don't want that to overshadow. You're right, um, you're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think I think part of the reason why those difficulties are there is the, the social attitudes, the way society is set up. Of course, which is what yeah, you... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is so interesting. Yeah. I don't think people realise... I mean, that, that, that's a, a huge part of what you stand for, isn't it? Because just, just highlighting yeah, how stigma can affect mental health and their confidence and, on what they will be able to achieve, which is is really interesting and also heartbreaking as a parent because you yeah. don't have that all we can do is doing what we're doing now but we, we don't have that much control um unfortunately the the evidence is that so far that autistic people have far higher rates of, of anxiety than the general population and also other other mental health issues and that is such a sad thing you know it's oh, totally it's just... preventable it's yeah, our isn't worst it? fear, isn't it, as parents? It's in... yeah. It depends on what the anxiety stems from, though. Like, Because um, I would say at the moment, um, my son does not perceive the world as being autism-unfriendly. Um, he wants... To, we were wor- Once I was worried about taking him somewhere um, because he'd been very up and down all day and I was a bit concerned he might have a meltdown in this place and it would be difficult to kind of extract... And in that situation, actually, he perceived my reluctance. I think I would be embarrassed if he had a meltdown out in public or I was worried about um, what would happen if he had a meltdown in public. And he actually said to me, people will understand, Mum, they're not cavemen. And in that moment, I felt such joy because I thought that it's okay. All the other things that might be going wrong in life at this moment, that is a massive triumph. Um, 
And if we can allow that to continue, that'd be great. So my son's anxiety, I think at the moment, doesn't stem from how he is perceived um, or how he feels himself to be perceived, but from literally what's going on in his mind. Just coping with a mind and a body which isn't doing things as easily in the day as the person next to you might, you know... um, might be um, I think that is what can cause a lot of anxiety um, so um, so yeah but where there where anxiety is stemming from um, but then, kind of but then that, input from the outside yeah I absolutely agree you've got to, you've yeah. got to look at the nuance and the granularity of each case right yeah and that's where we're at now as well that's where my, yeah. Leo's anxiety is stemming I mean he's only five so it's different but it's just his sheer mm-hmm. frustration with his you know, mind and body not yeah. quite kind of talking to each other but, the, but the, yeah, but the, the, I mean, the other thing just to say about that is, you know, regardless of where it stems, well, it, of course, where it stems matters. I'm not, you know, um, uh, minimising that at all. But the other, the other issue is is the issue of propagation. You know, once once it happens, regardless of where it came from, that the impact, the follow-on impact that the anxiety can have, can then really manifest itself in in other ways. And the trauma, it can actually be traumatic in the long term. You know, I mean, it could be that. The, the anxiety sort of manifests more and more in just general everyday life and becomes more of a like a snowball effect you know mm-hmm. and then that of course uh, impairs everything else you know it can increase social loneliness and impair the way that you know you you, you your, your ability to communicate with others and and you know every, like we said everything earlier everything is linked right mm-hmm. so the issues to do with stigma and attitudes and, and the interface between society and and the autistic person and, and us as, as parents and carers and whoever else, that also gets uh, that gets played around with as well as a part of that propagation effect, simply because you're, you're feeling anxious from something, something else, mm. you know? So what I'm saying is, regardless of where it comes from, it propagates and causes subsequent issues, um, which can then hit back harder, mm-hmm. you know? So it's, it's, it's a problem. And the fact is that autistic people do have far worse mental health they get older as well and this is the thing that we were just saying about how our sons it's more anxiety frustration with themselves but once they realize that i don't know it's when the conformity the pressure to conform kicks in maybe when they get older which is you know something that's probably always going to be around you know we have this certain like school structure and just just ways of life and just you know that they're they're gonna have to i guess I hate to admit it, conform in some way, mm. and um, that's that's really going to highlight um, their anxieties that they have about themselves anyway. Yeah. So yeah. you you really can see how that could. Yeah. And then yeah. So if we can find ways. the stigma as well with, with that in adolescence, and then. Right. It's... So if we can find ways of reducing anxiety and reducing, uh, improving mental health, and we can do that, I'm sure, by tackling social attitudes and public stigma. If we can tackle that. That will have a positive effect on, on well-being. Not a complete, total solution, but of course that will have some positive impact. And then that will trickle back down, which is what I was trying to say earlier, mm-hmm. that everything's connected. That will trickle back down to you know, being less likely to be so negatively affected to whatever it is has caused the initial issue. You know? mm-hmm. yeah. So it's a sort of, it goes both ways. What I'm saying is if we, if we tackle the wider social issues and the social attitudes then... That we were, there will be so many rewards. We won't even be able to measure them. I think, you know. No, absolutely. And and if they if our children are going to be um, calmer and more comfortable with being so different, and 
then if they're able to you know be, be more proud of that and speak about it quite openly and honestly mm. and that's just going to help everybody is understanding therefore reduce the stigma coming directly from an autistic mm. adolescent so, so yeah no you if you really think about how everything's linked it's, yeah, it really yeah. is yeah. and also it's i think it's a force for good for children who who don't necessarily um who aren't autistic but are just not feeling particularly normal mm. or typical oh. or you know i think that that's one thing i'm quite proud of with my, my son is that i do have a real sense that he's opening the door for those around him to be more themselves um, as well. Which is so lovely. And I think that's the thing. I think it's not just, it's not a one way. Um, It's Mm. the autistic community has a lot to teach us, as indeed anybody with any disability has to teach us about how to accept aspects of our neurotypical selves, if you are, you know. Um, And I think that that's great for all children. I guess the point you're making is that fundamental to society's happiness is mental well-being Mm, Um, and that's the role that our kids can play that we can play as parents and autistic adults can play that's the role we can play to to kind of encourage that um but yes it's quite hard to (laughs) again we appreciate it's very hard to have Mm. this wider sense of perspective on things when you're just worried about getting through the day you know without a meltdown or or you know getting from a to b um but uh but it helps you know that it helps to have this sense of perspective sometimes for your own mental well-being as a parent it's it it is all about the nitty-gritty when you're parenting for any parent um but you aren't just about that your parenting experience isn't just about that you have a wider role to play in society and in this world and your children do um and i think that can help to elevate you from you know the kind of daily struggles mm. and you're right all kids have their thing as well i don't know you must find this a lot as well when you when i'm kind of explaining how the well how the specific individual autism affects us and um affects him it's um so many parents have said oh well yeah my kid does like something pretty similar and they're certainly not saying that their child's autistic but I don't, I don't know it's made them more um, open about sharing things that they're they've probably been a bit embarrassed to talk about that they're struggling yeah, with their kids yeah. who are not autistic and then but every child I mean as adults we've all got our thing you know that we struggle with or it's yeah and it's it's just all if, if it can all just be fine for everyone to have their thing and like you say, just yeah, it's just lovely if you feel that your son is paving the the way for other kids to feel more comfy with their things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I mean, you don't, I don't want to. It's funny because I think you do. Again, it's like um, the aspirations you have for your child. I think I've got to be very careful about kind of creating this little autistic advocate. You know, it's really I've got. Yeah. You can sometimes sometimes you can lose sight of it as well. Lose sight of their own personal input in their lives um, and also it can be quite difficult for an autistic child to necessarily speak up they're struggling so much to try and just get their everyday messages across that um, they can't really they're probably too exhausted to have a conversation about where they see themselves going or how contrary is to what you mm. see but um, but it's nice to have chances and opportunities um, things aren't just completely cut off from you in terms of being a kind of a vital part of society if you want to take it Otherwise, um, but I think that, you know, parents getting together and having discussions like this, and I think it all facilitates it. Um, 
and it's just so good to get other people's perspectives on stuff as well oh yeah because I still have no idea what I'm doing to be honest uh, in just parenthood in general I've just um I don't know it's that winging it kind of thing I particularly feel that way because yeah I've moved to London from Yorkshire so there's kind of no family around or anything I've got very good friends but um yeah every day is just like oh we've got through today that that's that's brilliant and I, I think it's fine to feel like that yeah. as well as a parent it, yeah. There is a lot of survival in it, and, it, and okay. it's okay to just get through the day and then have a glass of wine and feel really chuffed that everyone's been fed and, you know, happy-ish, you know. Mm. It's, um, yeah, because you want to do your bit, and you're looking at the, the bigger picture all the time, but I think this is what links us all. We're all just kind of getting through, aren't we, the best way we can. Yeah, um, so mental health is, is an issue. We're going to talk about that yes. more and more as we go on. Another issue, if you don't mind me saying, James, is epilepsy, right? This is another big issue with autistic people. I mean, for me, it, for me, it's the comorbidities associated with that, with autism sometimes that are the, the big problems, such as the mental health and also epilepsy as well, which is uh, unfortunately, again, autistic people suffer from see, far, far higher rates mm. than, than the general population. Am I right in saying that, James? Um, yeah, I haven't looked into... Autistic people generally, but probably. Um, it, my son um, has epilepsy, um, sort of moderately, um, and it is a scary thing, and it can be um, life-threatening. So it's just another thing added on <laughs> that you have to take on board, um, and you learn to deal with it and keep it under control. Um, but as we're saying, like, everything is linked, right? So, yeah. so when you know that can then Im- impair mental health, can't it? Because if you, I mean, mm. it must be such a stress for you and for him well, as but, well. Yeah, right? I, yeah, I worry about you know what you know what's going to happen to him. And but uh, I've spoken to other people um, that have told me about their experience of what it feels like uh, in a, the build up to a seizure, and um, you know, it makes you feel absolutely. It's a terrible physical experience. Um, it's very painful and confusing. Um, so, um, well, painful in what way? So we should be. Ignorant. I just don't know much about this actually. You know. Um, like, gen- like generally feeling, you can feel sick. You can feel dizzy. Uh, you lose control of your body. Um, the brain is um, experiencing like a loop. Where, uh, so it becomes dangerous. It's like uh, a short circuit. In elect- it's it's to do with electricity actually the brain waves become a bit lo- they become like um, electricity that uh, becomes dangerous and the longer the seizure goes on it can do serious damage you know so you have to administer uh, rescue medicine it's absorbed straight into the mouth um, they don't swallow it you uh, release the medicine into the inside the skin of their cheeks. And that gets straight into the bloodstream, um, and it sort of dampens down the effect and stops the seizure from happening, and then allows the person to that they'll go to sleep and um, sleep it off for a few hours, probably if it's a powerful seizure. Um, yeah, people can people are aware during it. They, my son, um, his whole body locks up. When I first saw him, I. It happened. Um, he'd just come in from school. He was about four years old, and I had no idea what it was. Um, he was 
standing like a statue with his eyes rolled up. So oh, I thought, yes, what, uh, you know, it looked like he was there. So I dialed 999 and they told me what, what it was and what to do. Yeah, so you just basically put, lay them down in the recovery position on their side and wait, you know, if you haven't got drugs then you have to call an ambulance and then um, the, the paramedics will help you. Um, for those parents that are beginning to experience this, what advice would you would you give those people? With with my son, um, it might be different to other other people's experience, but with my son, um, I've found um, the 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 causes can be to do with his other health problems, um, and he can get a minor illness. My son have found because of his sensory difficulties, he's sensitive to heat and changes in body temperature. It's quite rare, but it's worth looking into to you know to to have a good pediatrician behind you um, to get your son referred. It's a priority when you've got that kind of thing happening to, to try and look into the causes. And if the, if the doctors aren't looking into the causes, then do some research on your own and go with your common sense. You know, I've I've now been able to predict like when what's happening with my son's health is going to uh, have a snowball effect and cause a, a seizure. So I'm able to prevent a lot of them happening just by s simple prevention of things. Um, giving him a lot to drink. Um, he was getting a lot of constipation, severe constipation. Uh, and that was raising his body temperature and making meal, and he was on a lot of medicine for that. And I didn't know where that was coming from. Um, turns out his school weren't aware of how to persuade him to have a drink. So I made him aware of that, and then um, his constipation has improved. Because of that, he's not having so many seizures. Mm -hmm. you know? So the school school has a role to play? Yeah, the, you have to really, as a parent, be in close contact with the school you're working as a partnership and if you can't get that partnership <laughs> you know maybe you're not in the right school for them or something like that you know so it's important to have that kind of the trust that you can you know during the day that you're not worrying as a parent that you you can go about your other tasks and get them done without having anxiety yourself about what's going on at school Yes, it's a good chunk of the day there at school. I'm finding this now. It's, I don't know. You really are feeling like you're handing them over for a big, big chunk of their lives, really. Mm. Especially when they're just getting to know their needs as well. You know, it, I think yeah, it's imperative, isn't it, that you trust in the teachers and that making sure that. But this is this is the, the other thing that's all interlinked with our parents' mental mm. health. That's just so damn much to like think about all the time, isn't there? And um. I'm often told that I kind of like get a bit too obsessed and think too much, but I kind of like doing the thinking. I feel like it's it's my job, and that that's you know I, I like everything to be. Yeah, you have especially when their health is if they've got a health especially issue. Especially with your case, yeah. I mean, that's, so you have to be on top of it. You have to do your research, and uh, often the teachers aren't aware of things, so you have to then uh, you email things. You know, you, you, you keep on at them and communicating with them. If all else fails, you, 
uh, you know, I've my school's got an open door policy. It's a special school, so I'm lucky. I can just go into the classroom and I can show the teacher what to do. Right. You know, and things like that. So, you know, if all else fails, you can do that. You, you know? can go. So if you're feeling worried one day in particular, can you can you just go yeah, there? Yeah, just yeah. pop in, yeah. It's, it's tough, isn't it? Because, you know, it's such a, it's such a uh, benefit for parents to be proactive. But it's tough to be proactive, isn't it? If you're feeling down and low and anxious and all the rest of it yourself, you know, it's tough, isn't it, to do to do these things, to be proactive, to... Well, because of the, you know, the admin, and the, there's just so much... The do all the paperwork, all pushing the referrals, pushing the teachers, making sure they're on top of... All of that is crucial and really makes a big difference, as you said, but it's... It's a job in itself. It's a job in it? itself, isn't it? And, you you know, you, if you're already feeling the strain, it's... It's, it's the really responsibility, it? I think, that yeah. which also you, that, that stems from... You can start to feel lonely because the, you, you're feeling the weight of it all on your shoulders because mm. nobody else is in your situation. Nobody else understands mm. um, or you, you think that... Yeah. So, I was going to say, like, one way, I mean, um, we've got a very informal parent support group um, at my son's school, which is all just set up by us, you know, by word of mouth. Um, so the um, you can't, connection, we found connection there, um, and we realised actually we weren't the only people doing, having, being pushy parents, or having that kind of, you know, um, very intensive communication with the school, and that can help. Um, it certainly, I think... Mm. You know, if I speak for the group, I think it helps us because then you can compare notes and compare kind of see what has worked with parent-teacher communication at school. But um, but yeah, just going back to James' experience, I was just sitting there thinking that I've only just got to a stage where I can send him in and know that he's in the right hands and I can step away. But to have the constant worry about... I mean, we all have the worry about their health and safety, but it's its so pertinent for you, isn't it, that, that to have to kind of cope with that every day, yeah, it requires a certain amount of resilience and strength, I think, to do that. Gosh, yeah, yes. Yeah, I've got very frustrated at times when people, you know, get phone call, oh, he's had a seizure, you know. You have to just keep on, make sure that they get, they're aware of everything. Just the importance of the little things in their health, like just giving them a drink and giving them extra time, you know, to focus and that kind of thing, giving them extra space. And also treating the, you know, treating it like as if you would give a medicine, you know, mm-hmm. he literally has to have that, he can't miss it. Or they're not giving him enough drink to top up his cup again and see if he wants another one, you know, things like that. Um, because it's, it's such a basic uh, thing. You'd think with a special school they would know automatically, but they, you can't assume anything. You have to make sure. If you're not, if you've got a doubt about something, just check it. Because um, often there's a reason why. If there's a warning alarm going off in your head, there's a reason why. Well, it all makes sense to us as parents, mm-hmm. doesn't it? Everything about our child kind of make, make, makes sense and um yeah, you, you, it's just remembering that not everyone's going to get that, which is again what I face sometimes. Oh, you don't really, do you really need to thrash that out? Is that something that's really necessary? Mm-hmm. And But you, you know that it is. You can't assume that people know. But to yeah. do all these things, to be do the chasing up, to question and do, and do what you, you need to do, like I said earlier, requires some internal strength, some resilience. So at the heart of all this, I think, is, is mental health, isn't it? Because Absolutely. if your mental health is, is good and you're well and you have the resilience, 
you can do what you need to do, isn't it? If if you're feeling terrible yourself, then everything becomes harder, the fight doesn't it? Goes, and then everything it? everything else then suffers, doesn't it? But it's not just the well-being of you as a parent or even your child, but also the well-being of the teachers as well. Mm-hmm. If they're feeling, if they're well and they're, they're supported and they're happy, they're more likely to do their jobs better, aren't they? Yeah. You know, when, you, when, you're, when you're happy in your job. When they're feeling like they're making know. a difference and doing a good job, if they right. feel, yeah, informed and... So everybody's mental health, I think, has a role to play. Um, okay. Um, there's so much we could talk about. I know, I was thinking you can identify podcast themes through. There's there's so much to talk about, so I hope we haven't rambled on too much. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I echo that. <laughs> Is there anything we else we need to say about ourselves to, to introduce, or do, do you think we've said enough? Um, I think, I think you know, I think that the, the listeners hopefully will get to know us in time, right? I mean, we can't possibly cover everything so far but of course if there's anything else anyone wants to add now before we sign off just that this is our first time as you can obviously tell we might get better if but, you just stick with us you yeah. never know <laughs> barking dogs in the background <laughs> yeah. i have to remember to walk her before before each episode yeah. <laughs> that, was the, just, that was the mistake that i made i think I didn't well, we're learning yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. we've often got two two-year-olds here as well so it could have been a lot worse yeah, but, um, yeah, yeah. i'll try not to bring mine along to the next one Okay, so thanks very much. I thought that was really useful, really interesting. And um, bye for now. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the first episode of the Autism Podcast. Apologies for the background noise. I had my dog with us and I really should have walked her before we kicked off the recording. As I said in my intro, we have a number of interviews lined up from all sorts of different people across the autism sphere which we look forward to producing and releasing to you. We hope to grow our international audience by interviewing people from around the world not just the UK. If it does seem a little bit UK centric initially please bear with us as we expand our portfolio of interviews and interview people from all around the world and from all different kinds of backgrounds and contexts. If you want to donate please remember you can do so by going to our London Autism Group Facebook page and pressing the donate button or setting up a fundraiser. You can also PayPal us at London Autism Group Charity at gmail.com. That's London Autism Group Charity at gmail.com. Or if you shop on Amazon, you can go to smile.amazon.com or smile.amazon.co.uk. Be sure to select the London Autism Group Charity as your charity of choice and shop away. Um, In terms of finding the Autism Podcast, you can do so by going to iTunes or through the podcast iOS app. You can also find the show on Spotify and through most podcast apps, including the Podbean app, which you can find in the App Store or Play Store if you're using an Android phone. You can also find it through our YouTube channel and our social media channels, including, of course, our Facebook page, but also our Twitter site, handle of which is LAG Charity. That's LAG Charity. And finally, if you have an Amazon Echo or Alexa or another type of home speaker, 
you can also use those to search for us and find us. Thank you very much, and we will see you on the next one.